Hey, it's seven minutes after 11 o'clock on a think tank Thursday. Dave Rowland is coming up. Uh, Missouri Attorney General releases the Kim Gardner investigative report. I'll be curious to see what's in that. I'm sure he'll want to hear that, too. <laughs> uh, also, um, the, uh, the, court, uh, the court's uh, state officials hesitate to keep Trump off the 2024 ballot. Uh, they're trying to do this, the leftists, on, uh, in states all across the country. We'll get into the logic of that and whether or not he can defend this woman who apparently was putting rubber bands in for people with braces, uh, even though she's not a licensed dentist. What a crime. Uh, but we kick this segment off uh, with uh, Mike Murphy, ComoBuzz with 1Z.com. But he's more than just the editor of that of that uh, paper, that uh, uh, online uh, uh, news site. He's also the host of a new show on uh, our home station every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. That's right. Columbia, yeah. Columbia Buzz. Columbia Buzz with one Z? Nope, two Zs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I'm confused. Uh, yeah, it's uh, ComoBuzzWithOneZ.com. Uh, and then, and you've got a co-host. Al Germond. Can't go wrong. Yep. Cannot go wrong. Uh, all right, uh, let's just jump right into the... I, I, you sent me this link. I was looking. I was reading this story, and I was stunned. I cannot believe what you have revealed here about the mayor's ten-day trip to China. Yeah, I was pretty shocked too. Uh, I, I, when I found out she was gone, I was at a city council meeting. I didn't hear anything about it, and there was talk about some uh, uh, climate change conference, and she's representing Columbia on a global stage. I went to look and uh, went to the internet to find out what was going on. I couldn't find anything. So I, uh, I, I went to back to the city to find out who was paying for it, and I got this U.S. Heartland China Association. So I, I, I checked them out. I'd never heard of them, but, of course, but they are, they're definitely a thing. They've been around since 2003. Uh, former Missouri Governor Bob Holden was real big in uh, forming them and uh, still is their president and uh, uh, chairman. And they're very uh, China-friendly. They, they have a, a, a belief uh, of our, that our relationship is, you know, Built on mutual respect and understanding and those types of things. Yeah, <laughs> well, I know. Tell you there. Yeah, yeah. Well, so he sponsors all these trips uh, to build bridges and educational partnerships to expand cultural ties, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what happens is, is he's been linked then, or the Heartland China Association has been linked, and he himself to many groups over in China who are directly affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party and their influence campaigns. So, and, and this is like, I, this is no stretch. These are just uh, uh, flat out uh, facts that can be go out and found by anybody. Uh, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, he's the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's the one making the most noise. He actually sent a letter to the United States Conference of Mayors uh, last year warning of Chinese Communist Party efforts to gain influence over local officials by targeting mayors and local officials. Uh, uh, he, he, he keeps ringing this bell, and, and apparently, uh, as I, I, I don't know if they're hearing it when I see this, obviously these, this delegation of seven that went over, and I talked to the mayor about it a little bit here, and she seems somewhat clueless, but... Uh, it is, it, it, <laughs> Here we quote you on Yeah, that. it's not just Rubio, but... But Rubio is, here's a, and they're calling out this U.S. Heartland China Association, I mean, directly. Here's a quote from Rubio. The Chinese Communist Party is working at every level to influence decision makers in the United States. 
the U.S. Heartland China Association plays a vital role in that effort. And that's that's who took Buffalo to China. So, you know, I I, I, I think I'm kind of hoping for some more explanation. But first of all, what's she doing there in the first place and how it benefits uh, Columbia? But, you know, it's 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 I, and I don't mean to be alarmist. It's just amazing when you, you read this and don't think this is this is partisan. Uh, uh, the Biden administration itself has distanced itself from this Heartland Association. They had a. Uh, its own National Counterintelligence and Security Center exposed that a couple of its mid-level employees were affiliated with this uh, Heartland China Association. And the Biden administration wanted to distance itself uh, uh, from them and actually get their name taken off of, of the website. So, you know, uh, you know. Well, I, I just, what in the hell could a mayor from a medium-sized Midwest city what could she possibly have for motive to go to China? What could she learn from the communists? What does she want that the communists are offering? It's, it's, even if it was a benign organization that paid her way, what is she going to learn from the Chinese except how to be a communist? Well, and the, uh, our own State Department issued a warning uh, in 2020, so this goes back away, that one of these groups that the Heartland Association works with and partners with frequently, quote, has sought to directly and malignly influence state and local leaders to promote the People's Republic of China's global agenda. So there's a ton of warning out there. And, uh, you know, the f- fact that she's, you know, running off to China without really even, uh, you know, I, I don't know. She's representing she, the city of Columbia. She should be saying, I'm the mayor of the city of Columbia. I got no business uh, with international affairs. And going to China. Thank you, no thank you. Well, they told her it was about, I, I think she believes that because of her, uh, her background and uh, experience in, with climate change and environmental protection that she was selected. That's the other funny thing, you know. These folks were selected, and it was a by-invitation only delegation. Now, think about that for a minute. Useful dupes, that's what I think it is. <laughs> I think so. I, it sure sounds like it. Um, I want to change the direction here for just a couple of minutes. We just had uh, Jill Schlute on the program. Uh, were you surprised that she was picked? No, I won bets. Did you? Yeah. Yep. Good for you. Yep. We were on the same team there. Yeah. No, I, I, I early on, uh, so during the selection process, when, he, when, the, when the city manager formed his panels, uh, interview panels, there was no member of Race Matters Friends on any of those panels. So that, told, that was my tip-off when I started doubling down and was willing to put money on it. Uh, that he, that, and that's where most of the noise came from, that, uh, or most of the influence that we wanted an external candidate that's where a good part of it came from and and then the other thing is i'm going to put out a little story tomorrow in the last seven or eight major hires that that uh, carlin seawood has made in in columbia virtually every single director position that he's filled which is almost all of them in the last year has gone to the internal candidate every single time so people wanted to bet me i i i made some bets and i'm going to collect a little bit of money here in the next week I'm thinking I might want to have him on the program because I think that makes sense to hire from within. These are people who know, you know, how the system works, knows the players, knows the problems. It makes sense to me. Yeah, he's got a lot of people with 20, 25 years experience. The argument on the other side of this is that the police, that the police department needs fresh blood. It needs uh, uh, new ideas. It needs to change direction a little bit, actually. And, and, and Jill Schlute is, you know, she's um, 
uh, sort of like aligned with this way they've been doing things for a long time. Now, that doesn't certainly mean she can't change, and I expect she will, and I think she'll bring her own ideas, and I'm actually looking forward to see- seeing what she can do. But there is a, a faction of folks out there that really believe we need uh, uh, fresh blood, new blood, not people who ha- are already burdened with the experience of being part of the Columbia Police Department. I think she's going to do a terrific job. She knows she knows already uh, what they're up against. And i got to tell you, I don't see where the Columbia police officers are doing a terrible job at anything. No. Oh, no, I don't think so either. Uh, I think that, well, the, the problem right now, as she alluded to, as she was just talking to her, is they're so horribly understaffed, they have to figure out how to get that fixed. No, but they're a, they have a bit of a history. There's been some incidents that go back years. Um, they're very white, right? They're not very diverse yet uh, for no, no wrong reasons, just the way things have evolved. So th- there's some uh, distrust that comes from the black community that thinks that that uh, needs to happen faster. They should be diversified faster. But diversity is not important. You want, you want competence. You know, it, it, having equality in numbers of people of different races is ridiculous. I mean, we don't go for equality in, in, in uh, basketball players. No, but you're exactly right. But that's what those folks would disagree with you. And, and you know the argument, and that's just the argument that is out there. But as I mentioned, uh, somewhat to my surprise, I don't think they got the ear of DeCarlon Seawood. And uh, he didn't invite them in to the uh, interview, and he made his choice uh, uh, much to their chagrin, actually. Well, I think he did a good job, and it sounds like he's been doing a good job. And it sounds like you're doing a good job. Thanks. And... We can now listen to you Sunday mornings, yep. 8 to 10 a.m.? Yep. Wow. We'll be talking about China for sure this week. I got, you've read that story. There's a ton of information there, and it gets down into the weeds, but it's all facts. It's easily gleaned facts, and it's really quite striking what, what's going on there. And to think that we're here in Columbia somehow been either targeted or part of it is kind of fascinating. You know, with the makeup of the city council and uh, direction of the city, it doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. All right. Como Buzz with 1Z.com. You can re- get that story. It is fascinating read. I read it. I was stunned. Uh, you got to get more details out of it by reading it because we don't have time because Dave Rowland is sitting right here waiting to come in next. All right. Mike Murphy, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Talk to you later. Dave Rowland coming up next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. 21 minutes after 11 o'clock on a Think Tank Thursday. And I'm pleased to tell you that uh, Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. And I'm going to start off not where he expects me to start off. Well, maybe he does. Maybe he was listening. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm going to just jump right in here. Dave, good morning. Good morning, uh, Gary. The Show Me Institute, I had uh, the Show Me Institute on the program a little earlier. David Stokes was, was with us. Uh-huh. And he was telling me about uh, this uh, dentistry uh, deal. Apparently, the state... Dentistry regulators are trying to shut down an unlicensed Bridgeton, Missouri business that uh, promotes inexpensive veneers uh, and does things like put the rubber bands on for people with braces, that sort of thing. Not uh-huh. doing, they're not drilling into anybody's mouth or anything. Not that I think the state should license that either. But they're saying, no, you can't do this. Only a licensed dentist should be doing this. Would that be a case that you would take on, or would that be something for the Pacific Legal Foundation? Um, it's it's certainly the type of case that we might take on. Um, so 
matter of fact, when I was with the Institute for Justice in D.C., um, we did take on a couple of cases where states were trying to prevent uh, businesses from doing ultraviolet teeth whitening. Um, so, again, this was completely not invasive. It didn't use any chemicals. People would just go to the business location and um, the employees would shine uh, ultraviolet light on their teeth. And that had the effect of brightening the teeth. Um, and, and so it was completely harmless. And yet the dentists in these uh, different states were saying this is the practice of dentistry and you are not permitted to do that. Only we are permitted to do that. So um, when, when I was with IJ, we took a couple of those cases. Uh, the courts did not react well to these cases, though. And part of the reason why is uh, courts get very, very squishy. They're, they're generally squishy on economic liberty issues, but they tend to get even more squishy when there is a claim that you're engaging in some form of medical practice. Um, you know, you, you might recall we had an animal husbandry case dealing with veterinarians who said that people that did basic husbandry work, like shoeing horses or floating horses' teeth, had to get veterinarians' licenses and um, basically Missouri state courts disagreed with us on that. They said, nope, you, uh, the state actually does get to shut down these traditional workers. So whenever you get into a field where there is arguably some medical angle, it can be even more difficult than usual to get a court to issue a good economic liberty ruling. That having been said, um, this might be a kind of a case that um, that the Freedom Center or one of these other national organizations would take on. Um, I just want people to know in advance that we try to focus our resources on the ones where we have the best likelihood of a positive outcome. And this, because we're actually talking about uh, if you're putting rubber bands on teeth, it can physically impact the alignment of the teeth. And so that may be a reason why courts would be particularly inclined to uphold the regulation at issue, even though I firmly agree that the regulation is ridiculous and that, um, you know, the dentist trying to get this shut down is, is patently absurd. Apparently, there is absolutely no indication that anyone has been harmed. Uh, right. Simply appeared that someone, possibly a dentist with nothing better to do, came across the ads and filed a complaint. And that's how a lot of these cases get started, Gary. Like, there will be zero indication that anyone has ever been harmed or is likely to be harmed. But you have someone participating in a licensed profession uh, who finds out about somebody doing this alternative work and uh, they kind of get riled up and go to the government and say, hey, you've got to shut them down. So I mentioned the animal husbandry case. In that situation, there was one local vet who decided he was going to complain about Brooke Gray uh, do it, providing this service for horse owners. And that was all it took to get the government to come in and work to shut her down. Similarly, we had a case dealing with um, a website that helped people gather information about apartments in the Kansas City area. One licensed real estate broker is all it took to get the government to come in and try and shut that business down. Um, and, and that's really one of the functions of these licensing laws. It provides a convenient legal avenue for members of a regulated profession to shut down potential competitors. Um, that's a problem.
And it's a problem that's baked into the design they're, of these regulations. They're taking away my choice. They don't have yeah. to go there to to uh, get the rubber bands taken off or put on. They don't have to go there for the veneers. But if I'm, you know, a, a little tight on money uh, and I think I could save some bucks and this is a risk I'm willing to take, nobody's forcing me, I should be allowed to do that. And I might save some money and this person could be very good at what they do. Right. Yeah, and, and I mean, think about how expensive dental work is as well. Dental work, um, you know, any sort of, of medical services are incredibly expensive in significant part because these professions are so heavily regulated, because the ability to do work in these fields um, is restricted so uh, harshly by the state. And so when you have a very harsh restriction on supply uh, and the demand is high, that means the prices are going to skyrocket. And it has negative impacts. So, for example, um, some states have adopted uh, some lenient practices as far as uh, dental hygienists are concerned. So doing very basic things, teeth cleanings, things like that, not fillings or drilling or anything like that, just you know, basic maintenance on the cleanliness of someone's teeth. Um, and the studies have shown that if you allow dental hygienists uh, kind of a free hand to provide these kinds of services, it has definite clear health benefits for the population of the state because people who otherwise would not be getting any cleaning at all, all of a sudden um, they, their dental hygiene is better and they have better health outcomes and they don't develop the kinds of severe problems that uh, you really do need to go and see a dentist about. And, uh, you know, if we adopted a more lenient standard, if we reduced the regulatory burden, it would increase the supply of services available and would make it so much more affordable uh, for for those of us who are not independently wealthy um, and, and can't necessarily afford to go and see a full dentist for something that is relatively minor, like, for example, veneers or uh, putting rubber bands on braces. Yep. That's just Taking away my choices, you know, they did a study on uh, uh, cities, and this isn't dentistry, but it's electricians, uh, on cities that require a licensed electrician to do any work on your uh, uh, on your house. And they found that in those cities where they had the strictest regulations, more people were electrocuted than in cities that didn't have those regulations. Because apparently, if you couldn't afford to pay the licensed electrician, you'd try it on your own. And yeah. And, and so more people uh, got electrocuted. Well, let me let me follow up on that real quickly. There's a, a, a scholar at the University of Minnesota named Morris Kleiner who has done a series of studies on occupational licensing and the quality of services available. And repeatedly he has found that occupational licensing increases prices without improving the quality of services at all. I think that makes the case. All right, we are, uh, I've, I've really uh, kind of thrown a monkey wrench into our plans, but uh, everybody in the state of Missouri practically knows about Kim Gardner and what what uh, what a tumultuous time that was uh, in St. Louis. Uh, and apparently the attorney general has uh, an investigative report that they've released. We're going to find out about that and more on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network.
This is The Gary Nolan Show. MoFreedom.org, that's Dave Rowland's website. The government's taking away your freedom. You might want to contact him. Uh, the uh, Missouri Attorney General. Brian, do we know anybody in the Attorney General's office that we could contact? <laughs> no, not a single person. Not Sorry a about single that, yeah. person, no. I wish we did. Yeah, where's Brandon? Rather, uh, Oh, oh that guy that doesn't wear shoes. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. him. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, the, Maduri- the uh, Missouri Attorney General has released Kim Gardner, uh, the Kim Gardner investigative report. Uh, Dave, what did, they, uh, what did he suggest? Well, so the report goes into great detail about um, why the Attorney General began its investigation of Kim Gardner's office, and then basically it presents the findings. And for everyone who has kind of followed the Kim Gardner saga over the last few years, um, I think they'll find a lot of the information in this report really interesting. Um, It also provides a detailed timeline explaining kind of when different revelations came about and it um, offers the attorney general's perspective on how those revelations influenced Gardner's decision ultimately to resign instead of continuing to fight the action that the attorney general brought against her in court. Um, I do have to say that at the end of the report, he does offer a handful of recommendations and and I don't agree with some of the Attorney General's recommendations so uh, one of the things that he talks about is um, the importance of uh, the importance of people being able to make their own choices when it comes to politics Uh, but at the same time what he was asking the courts to do was to remove from office someone who was duly elected now as anyone who's listened to this show over the last few years will know, I was not a Kim Gardner fan. Um, we sued her for failure to produce open public records and took her to task, beat her soundly about the head and shoulders, uh, metaphorically speaking, in court. Um, I think she was completely incompetent and bad for the citizens of St. Louis, but she was also the choice of the citizens of St. Louis. And if voters want to choose so someone who is incompetent i think they have to bear the responsibility for the consequences um and and basically what the attorney general is arguing is that it should be easier he's asking the legislature the general assembly to make it easier to remove elected officials from office and i cannot agree with that um I understand why it's advantageous for the attorney general to have that kind of authority. Um, It certainly helps politically for the attorney general to be able to wield that kind of authority. But I think that the implications are quite concerning. Um, And and that gets kind of to my takeaway from this report. And I do want to emphasize, I think it's interesting for anyone who, you know, followed this whole saga. um, There is a lot in here that I think will intrigue them and enlighten them. But at its base, when I read this report, I walked away feeling like it was a campaign document. I, I feel more than anything else that the attorney general was, tro- he published this report in an effort to show people, 
hey, look, you've got an attorney general who's fighting for you. You should really reelect me next year. And that leaves a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth because you and I have talked before, even though I think Attorney General Bailey has been doing some really good things, I do not like the politicization of some of these offices, well, um, let the, uh, particularly let the, people, the Attorney General's office. Let the people be the arbiter of who, um, who holds their office. Uh, yeah. Because if you give the uh, legislature uh, the the power to subjectively uh, remove somebody, what happens when the opposition gets that power? Exactly. So that's exactly. the problem. All right, I got to move on because we are way behind, and it's my fault. Uh, the courts and state officials hesitate to keep Trump off state ballots in 2024. A lot of Democrats around the country are trying to say insurrection, he's guilty, but he hadn't been tried. I don't know how they can make that stick. What's the story here? So this is really interesting to me because it has kind of split the conservative and libertarian legal movement. Um, there are a number of respected libertarian and conservative law professors who firmly believe that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the insurrection clause, bars President Trump from holding office again. And based on some of the scholarship that they've published, you've got these efforts in, in states across the country to try and keep President Trump from being on the ballot for the 2024 election. Here's the thing, though, Gary, and you know, I'm I'm not a huge Trump fan. I've, I've been a very vocal critic of his. I think those arguments are incorrect. Um, so I, I read the defense that President Trump uh, his attorneys presented in a couple of these cases, and I think they've got the better part of the argument. Um, basically, the insurrection clause prohibits people from holding office. It does not prevent them from running for office. And furthermore, there's a really interesting distinction between the oaths that are taken by uh, congressmen and the oath taken by the president. And the president's attorneys pointed out that the language used in the insurrection clause focuses on officers of the United States, of which you may be surprised to find that the president probably is not considered an officer of the United States. And then it also focuses on uh, the language used in the congressional oath, not the language used in the president's oath. And so as a textualist, which I am, I look at that and I say, well, the people who drafted and ratified this amendment understood that the language used in these oaths were different. They understood the distinction between regular officers of the United States and the president, whose job it is to appoint those officers. And they use language that focused on one set, but not language that would tend to focus on the presidency itself. And so I think the proper outcome here is to let Trump run for office again. Um, and if he's elected, I think he gets to serve again. But um, the question is still out there. So far, all of the courts that have reached a conclusion on this have agreed with me on this. So last week, the Minnesota Supreme Court said, yeah, we're not going to keep Trump off the ballot. Right now, there's a, a set of arguments going on in Colorado. That's right. Yeah. How can they make this argument when he's not been found guilty of insurrection? 
Well, the the insurrection clause doesn't say that there has to be due process uh, before someone is kept off the ballot. And in fact, after the Civil War, um, there were people eliminated from contention for the Congress uh, on the basis that they had sided with the Confederacy, uh, even though they weren't necessarily put on trial for insurrection. And so there is historical precedent that has said that this clause is effective to keep people out of office, whether or not they have been criminally tried and convicted. So, so they may not I, be, I do think that that's they may not, in other words, move. they may not be guilty of insurrection, but just because they've been accused, that's, it seems like a, a pretty weak. Uh, well, there there would have to be there would have to be a court determination that the insurrection clause applies, and so there would have to be some level of proof involved in that, but not necessarily a criminal conviction. Um, so, in order to have a criminal conviction, you have to have a formal charge brought saying this person violated this law, and they are at risk of you know fines or incarceration as a result. That's what a criminal prosecution would do. But one of the things in the wake of the Civil War is that the people that were living in the states that had rebelled were not necessarily interested in prosecuting the people that participated in the rebellion. Um, and so there were separate efforts to keep these pe people out of Congress in particular uh, when they were elected by their peers back in the states that had been in a state of rebellion. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that you can still have due process and uh, apply this provision without having to have gone through a criminal prosecution or conviction. Do you see what I'm saying there, the distinction well, I'm drawing? I, I, I see the distinction. I just think it's a little, it's, it's a quirk, if you will. I am up against the clock, and I have to take a break. Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. A doctor is suing the Mayo Clinic. Details coming up next on The Gary Nolan Show. It's 1149. He's a sometime guest host for me and others. He is Dave Rowland. MoFreedom.org loves to sue the government, enjoys taking the government to task when they take your freedom. And he's with us now, and a doctor is suing the Mayo Clinic. What's going on? So this is a little bit different from many of the cases that we talk about because it's not a government defendant, but it is indicative of a broader problem. So Mayo Clinic, for people who don't know, is a private hospital facility um, that also has a university system attached to it, the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science. And so many of the doctors that work there are also professors. And the Mayo College provides a guarantee to its professors of academic freedom, which is the same thing that's guaranteed to professors at public colleges and universities. And one of the things that academic freedom guarantees is the freedom of inquiry, the, the um, teacher's ability to look into any field of, of uh, academia that interests them, to follow where the evidence leads, and then to discuss their findings publicly. That's what academic freedom is, and it's absolutely essential to have uh, well-functioning colleges and universities. That's how you advance knowledge, is you look into anything that interests you, you follow where the evidence leads, and then you report your findings uh, to the best of your ability. 
Well, this doctor um, got crossways with the Mayo Clinic a couple different ways, and it had everything to do with him exercising his academic freedom. He is one of the world's foremost scholars in kinesiology, in um, the the science of, of athletics. And one of the things that his research has shown is that there is a distinct physical advantage for athletes who go through puberty as males when compared to athletes who go through puberty as females. And so when some of this ruckus started kicking up a couple years ago about transgender athletes and particularly Leah Thomas, the swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania uh, who was arguably at an unfair advantage uh, because Leah Thomas uh, was born male and had gone through puberty as a male uh, and she was out there wrecking the competition in these female swim meets. Uh, And this doctor went on TV and he explained that his research showed that it was not a fair competition, that if, if someone had gone through puberty as a male, they were likely to have a distinct physical advantage over uh, competitors who had grown up their entire lives as female. And he got disciplined by the Mayo Clinic as a result. Um, they called up a disciplinary proceeding. They suspended him without pay. Um, they were threatening him uh, for speaking his mind publicly on, on these issues. And now he's filed a lawsuit. He said, look, if you're going to guarantee academic freedom as you really must, um, you can't punish professors who go out and report what they found in their research. Um, I think it's a really important issue, even though it's not quite the normal context. This is more a contractual issue than it is a constitutional issue, but it has important implications for public schools and universities as well, because they're doing much the same thing in cracking down on professors who um, speak their mind in a way that does not reflect kind of the the um, persuasion of the administrators of a lot of these public schools. Yeah, you wonder if at some point the pendulum doesn't start at least swinging back to the middle. Um, well, what worries me is overcorrection. So one of the things that we've seen just in the last couple of weeks is some of the members of the Missouri legislature have started threatening to withhold funds from public universities for allowing their students to participate in pro-Palestine protests or anti-Israel protests. And that represents the exact same problem just from the other direction. And, and so that's what really concerns me. Uh, what we need to recognize is that Everybody needs the freedom to peacefully express their own opinion, however controversial that opinion is, without fear of retaliation from the institution or from the legislature. (sighs) You know, it's a shame the government gives any money uh, to education because that really even makes it messier yet. I've only got a few minutes left, but I want to get to this Arizona case. Fake electors led vocal campaign to overturn the 2020 election. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to talk about this because I had a conversation when I was up in D.C. uh, at the Heritage Foundation about this. Um, 
as people may recall, back during the 2020 election, um, President Trump was disputing the outcome in several states, and the states certified the slate of electors for Joe Biden because uh, they had reviewed the elections and they believed Joe Biden legitimately won those states. And in order to preserve the possibility of having the Electoral College count those states for President Trump, President Trump's associates and his attorneys lined up slates of electors who signed documents saying that they were certified and sworn uh, to vote that President Trump won these states when, in fact, the local authorities were saying he did not. And this has become quite controversial. It's one of the elements in the Georgia case uh, against President Trump and other 18 other defendants. It's now an issue in Arizona and potentially in Nevada. Uh, but the really interesting thing about this is what President Trump's team did was very similar to what President John F. Kennedy's team had done right. back in the 1968 election, rather 1960 election. Um, the initial report said that Richard Nixon had won the state of Hawaii by about 150 votes, and the slate of electors was certified for Nixon. President Kennedy believed that he had actually won that state. And so they had a slate of electors sign a document saying that they were certifying that Kennedy had won. Now, it wasn't signed by the governor, uh, but they did submit that slate of electors to the Electoral College, to Congress. Um, and then during the recount, it was confirmed that Kennedy won Hawaii, not Nixon. And at that point, they created yet a third slate of electors that was certified and signed by the governor and then sent to Congress. So the argument for uh, President Trump's supporters is, look, we were just doing precisely what President Kennedy did, and it was necessary in order to, to preserve the possibility that if we won some of these court challenges, that President Trump would get these votes in the Electoral College. So it actually, there may be a legitimate and valid defense for the people that were asked to sign on to these slates of electors that they were simply following the precedent set in 1960. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd seen that uh, 1960 story about uh, uh, that election, and I thought that might work as a defense, and uh, it just might. Um, I'm personally not persuaded, but it is definitely an interesting argument, and I'm open to the possibility that I might be wrong. Well, I'm open to the possibility that I'm out of time, and it's a shame. <laughs> uh, but uh, go to Dave Rowland's website, mofreedom.org, if the government is trying to take away your freedom, and he'll fight for you. Dave, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day, Carpe Diem. Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.